Scanny and thanks for tuning in to The Grown Up Hustle. This podcast is based on real people sharing all their different journeys as they navigate this crazy ride called adulting. From coffee o'clock to wine o'clock and all that happens in between, we're here to openly discuss how we're all just really hustling our way through life. So if you're ready for the highs, the lows and a whole lot of real talk, then stay tuned because we've got you covered. Welcome to today's episode of The Grown Up Hustle. So we're going to be covering two topics today on uh, both skin cancer and lymphedema. Today's guest is from my beautiful second home, Australia, and she developed skin cancer at the age of 19 and her treatment for that cancer then left her with a condition called lymphedema. So skin cancer is one of the most common cancers in Australia, with data showing almost 1 million cases of it in 2015. And skin cancer is primarily caused by excessive exposure to UV radiation from the sun, which then in turn causes DNA damage to your skin cells. And then if your body's internal DNA repair system can't repair the damage that the sun's done, it kind of malfunctions and then the cells start replicating in a faulty manner and that results in abnormal growth of cells that can become cancerous. Australia and New Zealand are actually the world leaders for this disease and interestingly it's not actually because of how much sunshine they get but it's actually to do with the fact that they have the wrong skin type for their environment. If you actually look at migration it's brought a lot of fair-skinned people to these countries and their lack of pigmentation makes them prime candidates unfortunately for skin cancer. You only have to look at indigenous Australians and their skin's obviously a lot darker and has got a much higher melanin content. So it kind of gives them, I don't know, like a suit of armour to protect against the sun. And although, interestingly actually, skin cancer rates, although low in Aboriginal people, aren't actually non-existent. We've actually got a really great slogan in Australia that all the kids know well, and that's slip, slop, slap. And it's a campaign that came about in the 80s And it stands for slip on a shirt, slop on some sunscreen and slap on a hat. And every single kid knows what that means. And it's still going strong nearly 40 years later. So after that brief skin cancer cause and effect overhaul, let's bring today's guest Bianca onto the show. So hey B, welcome to the show. It's great having you on today all the way from the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. And it's probably a lot warmer there than it is here for us today. Um, You're going to be talking today about your journey uh, of being diagnosed with cancer at the age of 19. And then post-treatment for cancer, how you've been left with lymphedema and how you've had to subsequently manage that following your cancer treatment. So if you want to take us back to uh, before May 2009, uh, that's before your cancer diagnosis and kind of what life was like for you back then before all of this began. Okay, well, first I want to say thank you for having me, Danny. Uh, nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. Well, before my diagnosis, even growing up, so my early years, my youth, I was always very athletic very strong, very robust. I had never even been to a doctor. I mean, probably for injections, but I'd never had a spraying, stitches, anything like that. And I was actually proud of it. (laughs) 
because I was so strong and healthy and I always had the attitude, well, nothing could ever happen to me. Nothing had happened to me, so I had no reason to expect it. And and so at the time I was living in Sydney and I I had a mole on my arm and I'd noticed the mole for some time, probably uh, six months I had it. At the time I used to fake tan. I wasn't very healthy at that time of my life. In fact, I, you know, had a diet of cheese and I drank beer and, you know, I just, you know, I lived a really unhealthy lifestyle, fake tanning, dyeing my hair all the time. And so it was when I was fake tanning, I noticed on the back of my left arm a mole. So it looked a little bit unusual, but it did start to become, it had an unusual sensation to it, not quite itching, but sometimes tingling. So I became a little bit concerned about that mole. Did you used to go in the sun and sunbake or you only use fake tan? Well, at that stage, I was not in the sun at all. I probably hadn't been in the sun properly for about four or five years. But growing up, I did go in the sun. As I mentioned, I was very athletic. So I was at the beach a lot. I did nippers, surfing. So it was my younger years that I spent in the sun. Even though my parents tried to enforce sun protection, we were just at the beach so much that it was unrealistic to always be protected. So at 19 then, you had this mole on your arm, you noticed it was tingling. What was the next step? Because obviously I know you have skin cancer clinics over there, but did you go to a cancer clinic or to the doctors? Well, given that I was so young, I really didn't think that it was going to be cancer. But growing up with the SunSmart message, getting skin checks constantly every year, in fact, at, at school, uh, in my youth, by my parents, it was just something that was ingrained in me. So we just went to doctors. I mean, I didn't think it required a skin cancer clinic. I didn't think it was skin cancer, but I had the attitude, look, I should just get it checked. It was my, something was telling me I should get it checked. So I went to uh, a GP and I had it checked by a GP. This first GP told me that it was nothing to worry about. It was just a mole and that I would be fine. And there was nothing further with that GP from there. Just sent me away, really. Some months passed, probably six months. And, yeah, so I then started to get a little bit itchy. I saw a second GP because I was a little bit concerned by this stage. And the GP told me, okay, it looks like there could be some irregularity to the mole. I will give you a referral and you can see a skin, go to a skin cancer specialist or a dermatologist. So I tried to make an appointment then, but it was a six-month wait for anyone to see me. Why was it such a long wait then? Because normally the healthcare system in Australia is phenomenal. So how come it was such a long wait for treatment for someone to see, you know, about a mole? Because I was looking for a dermatologist and at that time being so young, me just thinking, okay, well, I'll call up a dermatologist, make an appointment. If it was really serious, surely I would be fast-tracked to something. Surely the doctor would push me into seeing someone. So I thought, well, she's probably just doing like a, you know, just to be sure check and I, I'll, just, I'll just wait. So I really only did contact one or two dermatologists. And in the area that I was in, 
it wasn't, it, you know, it was Western, the Western suburbs. And I just don't think there were that many dermatologists around the area or that a mole was a priority in Sydney. Had I been in Queensland, where skin cancer rates are higher and skin cancer and melanoma are more common, it would have been something that would have been quite easy for me. So you had to wait then. So did you end up waiting the full six months before seeing a derm? I didn't wait. I decided that I would see a third GP. So you knew in your gut that there was something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Something wasn't right. I was, my, my body didn't feel right. I had a lot of, um, I guess they're called mental health issues now, but anxiety, severe depression, tingling in my body, pins and needles. I was severely, my health just didn't seem right. Even at a time before there was a focus on health, I just knew something was different within me. I didn't have my parents. I was living in Sydney with my sisters. I didn't have my parents. I didn't really have anyone that I could turn to, to to guide me to know whether or not what I was feeling was normal. So I found a third GP that I went to and he had previously worked in a skin cancer clinic. He took one look at the mole and decided to cut it out on that day to do a biopsy. So what, he removed the whole mole that day? He took the mole out and just a small margin around the mole. So they used that margin to see how aggressive it is. What was the next step after that? So from there, this part is a, it could almost be traumatic, but for me, I look back and I try and see a little bit of a humorous side because I had just had uh, braces put on and just had a, an expander put in my mouth that day. And it was about four days after I had the mole cut out and I got a call from the clinic and I still couldn't speak. I was basically drooling everywhere. And the nurse said to me, look, uh, the doctor wants you to come in. And I was like, oh, come in. So it was just already not a good start to my day. (laughs) And I had a feeling at this stage, I mean, if you're getting called back in to see a doctor, usually it's, it's not good news. So I, rem- I recall walking to the, the medical practice and just thinking, I have a feeling this, this is not going to be good and just tried to mentally prepare myself for it. And you did that on your own? Yes, I did. I walked there. I called my sisters and said, I have to go back in. They still hadn't seen me with my braces and were laughing at the way I was talking. So I don't think any of us took it that seriously. I ended up, I got to the practice. I didn't wait long. And I I walked in, sat down in front of the doctor and I could see it on his face. So he paused and he didn't, he didn't take much time. He just said, look, there's not no easy way for me to say this, but the mole is cancerous and it's very, very aggressive. I mean, it's so much to deal with at a young age as it is, let alone on your own in a different city without your family, without your sisters. Like that's one hell of a lot for you to have to deal with. So what, what was your feelings at that point and what was the next next stage? At the time, I don't really believe that I understood the severity of skin cancer because it wasn't something that was discussed or highlighted as a serious cancer. A lot of people and even I back then assumed, you know, it was just something that happened on your skin and you just take it out. So when he explained to me the process that would follow, it was a real shock 
because I was grasping how severe this was. I thought, okay, if it's a mole and it's cancerous, we'll just take it out. But once the doctor explained that it could have potentially spread because of it being so aggressive, it was a shock to me. And I became, I actually felt really scared, not knowing how much it might have spread or what the steps were moving forward with that. What was on offer treatment-wise for you? What did they advise you to do next? The doctor had contacted the Melanoma Institute Australia and he explained that there was a professor there who would give me really good treatment because he was a professor and he had been doing it so long. He had saved a lot of lives and said that I should be really grateful that I lived in Sydney because I had access to this person. So that gave me some hope. I had that at the back of my mind. I was scared and I was confused, but I had hope. And I, I, I was hoping also that it hadn't spread, thinking I was so young. It was still just a thought that I, it's not spread, it's just, you know. So he, he said to me, you will need a surgery you'll need more of the tissue removed and then the professor will go through what else you need. So I just thought, okay, you know, a surgery, a scar. At this stage, I had no scars on my body. I had never even had an accident, as I said earlier. And I thought, okay, one scar. Okay, I can do this. It's just a scar, just a line on the back of my arm. That's fine. I can, you know, if that's all the treatment, I've got this. Just really prepared myself. And that's when I sort of, switched over from I was a patient but I became I was always strong and determined but from there something inside of me switched and I became I wouldn't say that I had to remove all emotion but almost robotic I had to get through this no matter what the cost I was going to fight this you know I was going to beat it attitude even though I didn't know if it had spread So from there, I went to an appointment. It was only a few days later at the Melanoma Institute. And I met with the professor. It was a very brief consultation that I look back on now and realized how it was far too brief for what had to be done. So he told me, we're going to have to take a lot more tissue. Didn't even tell me that there would be muscle, but just said a lot more tissue. And we have to do what's called a sentinel node Biopsy. When I heard that, I was so confused. Like, what is this? What is a node? I said that lymph node. You know, when you get swollen glands in your neck. And I said, no, my sister's had it, but I haven't. <laughs> and he said, well, they're swollen lymph nodes. So you have those under your arms. And we're just going to take three. The first three, we test those because if the cancer has spread from the back of your arms to your triceps, if it is aggressive and it spreads, it will go first to those lymph nodes. They're the closest lymph nodes to that area so after that you you went to see the professor did you need to have chemotherapy before or after your treatment what was the next stage well from there I had been booked in for surgery so this was uh this was all May that the diagnosis happened and that consultation they booked me in for a surgery for early June that it rushed me in like squeezed me in and it was in the, it was that surgery which would determine if it had spread. So then they don't know. There's there's no chemotherapy or anything even thought about. It. They do a biopsy to know whether or not it had spread. So preparing for the surgery, I recall, and this was before phones. Well, 
iPhones had really just come out. And I remember I took one photo of the back of my arm in the change room. So you have to put the gowns on. And I remember thinking, this is the last time I will see my body without a scar on it. And it was just that moment where I thought, okay, I think reality hit a little bit. Like I said, I'd been robotic in autopilot and I had a bit of emotion and I was like, wow. So I get taken in. I didn't even see the surgeon again before the surgery, aside from that five-minute consultation, until I was just about to go under. And I said to him, are you sure you know what you're doing? He's like, yes, it's fine. I've got this. Okay. So I woke up. It was very painful. I don't think I anticipated how painful it was going to be and later realized that not only had they taken tissue, but they did take muscle as well. And then I had underneath my arm that they'd taken the lymph nodes out. So I now know that's what was causing so much pain is because my lymphatic system was trying to respond to that. It was basically from there, I I couldn't move my arm and... Although it was painful, I was just waiting for the results of the biopsy. So I was, I was almost, again, just shutting off from emotion. And that emotional pain that I shut off was a coping me- mechanism for the physical pain. It was also when I first realized that I couldn't take painkillers because I took them when I woke up in hospital. That first time I've ever taken them, they made me really sick. So I had to basically heal using just Panadol and yeah it was probably two weeks before I went back to hospital for the results and I I still look back and I think of how strong my body must have been still um, not quite it didn't quite have the repercussions of the missing lymph nodes yet because I was so anxious and and which I know now know Healing is really difficult when you're not in the right frame of mind. And I can look back and I can see I I did heal considerably fast, but it was the anxiety that was really the hardest part of that. And I didn't have, I still, my parents didn't realize the severity of it. So I I was still relatively alone. I had my sisters, but they had their lives at the time. So it it, it was very lonely. And being so young, I didn't have anyone else that I could reach out to. There was no support group. There was nothing for me. Um, So, yeah, very lonely. After the two weeks had passed, you obviously went back in and they gave you your results. And what were those results? So I went back in and the professor, he didn't have the look on his face that the GP did when I sat down. So I was really hopeful sitting in front of him. But then he started to tell me about how the surgery went and then without even a pause just said, and also the nodes, uh, we found some cancer. So it has spread. And your heart must have just dropped at that moment. It did. It did. It was uh, like a slap in the face. I think my body just froze. <laughs> I, even at, at my age now or any age, but at 19, or, you know, when you're there on your own, and you must have just been thinking, shit, what's next type thing, you know? What was the next step? What did he offer you treatment-wise? I'm sure others would consider this a choice, but for me, I didn't feel like it was much of a choice. So my options were to A, 
have a surgery to remove more lymph nodes under my arm that the cancer might have potentially spread to beyond those initial three. Option two was to go on a trial, a clinical trial, which was actually the first clinical trial I was offered in a chain of clinical trials. The clinical trial was basically split into half the groups. There were two groups. Group one would have their lymph nodes monitored by an ultrasound. And if there were any changes in the lymph nodes, they could then potentially get a, a surgery. Option two was this surgery, which I was offered as my first treatment option, which was to have the lymph nodes removed. So it was A, have a surgery, or B, put on a trial where it was randomly selected of half would have ultrasound and half would have surgery. Option three was not have the surgery at all and not know if the lymph nodes had spread. So that was option C. So what did you decide to go for? It was, this was a, one of the hardest times of my life, one of the hardest decisions I've made and what I still think now makes decision-making so difficult for me. So I had to weigh so many things up and it was at this time that I started researching when I learned so much about the lymphatic system, even before, I mean, now we have so much access to information. We're almost just flooded, it's everywhere. But at this, at this time, believe it or not, even 12 years ago, it was very difficult to research. So I, and, and also something relatively unknown and not a lot on the internet about the lymphatic system. So I ended up, you know, piecing together the importance of this system in our body. And that's when I learned it was essentially our immune system. And it was, you know, our detoxification system. And I had someone who at the time, alternative and complementary medicine weren't as widely or commonly used, but she had been a, a healer of some sort. And it said to me, please don't do this surgery. Once you take these lymph nodes out, this is going to be a snowball effect. And essentially, this will affect your quality of life. Please try and heal in another way. We can do this in another way. You only had a little bit of cancer. It might not have even spread. If you take them out, your life will essentially be very difficult. So I went back to the surgeon knowing this and said to him, I have found out this information and I've also read about a condition called lymphedema which we'll talk about later essentially just swelling in your body predominantly of a limb closest to the area that the lymph nodes are taken out and I said to him what if I get lymphedema and I'm only 19 and he said no you won't get lymphedema that only happens to women who have breast cancer you had melanoma so it won't you won't get it and I said, but isn't it still just taking out lymph nodes? And he said, yes, but you won't get it. And he said, and I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, if I were, if you were my daughter, I would tell you to get the surgery. So this is someone, a professor, obviously all of my trust I'd put in him. And so I, I, I said, okay, well, if I go down the surgery, I'll never forgive myself for doing the surgery as a first option. I'll put myself on the trial and let fate decide because if I get the, there was no other option for me to have the ultrasound without the trial so I really wanted to be monitored by ultrasound but it wasn't an option for me so I thought if I go on the trial I might potentially be monitored by this ultrasound 
without having my lymph nodes taken out. That would mean that if there was something that changed because the lymph node would get a little bit bigger before the surgery. So I selected the trial and then a few days later, I got a call to say that I was selected for the surgery, which for me was really disappointing. I, I was really upset. Probably one of the few times I cried throughout that process, just trying to stay strong. But I do know that when I found out it was the surgery, it was me realizing that that was my, my future had changed dramatically. With the trial, um, obviously you said the group was split in half. Was, was the decision made based on each person's individual case or was it literally luck of the draw? You split down the middle and it could have gone either way. That's a bit controversial for me. Okay. I, yeah, I still don't think, I still don't um, talk much about this because of my understanding of trials and Western medicine treatment and especially the amount of money they were given for this particular trial. So I don't go too much into that, but I do have my own belief about it. So next step then, they'd booked you in for the surgery you were obviously so disappointed that you had been selected for the surgery and not the ultrasound. And I'm assuming then your your family came in and you went for your surgery. So what happened after that? Yes, yeah, so my dad finally came down, <laughs> knowing that it was a bit more <laughs> a bit more serious. So yes, I went that I went for the surgery um, August 4th. And before that, I didn't really get a lot of information about the surgery, healing, post-surgery, any information. I had tried to ask about lymphedema, but never really got any answers. So I had the surgery that day and I knew I would have to stay in hospital. But when I woke up, it was, to this day, the most pain I have ever experienced in my life. I had not been prepared for the amount of pain that I would be in. I had a drain attached to me and it was excruciating. And I had some occupational therapists come into my room not long after I'd even woken up. I was still really um, drowsy and just trying to manage the pain without painkillers, of course. And that was, that was a really, that I see this day as like a day that I changed as a person because of the delivery of information. I was then told by these occupational therapists, okay, so from now on, you can't go expose yourself to hot or cold temperatures. You can't go in saunas. You can't go to the snow. You can't, if you fly, you have to wear a compression bandage. You can't carry grocery bags. You can't over-exercise. Actually, they told me exercise could potentially, all of these things that they had told me to avoid could trigger lymphedema. But you weren't told any of this pre-surgery? No. Even when you were pushing and asking about lymphedema? Yes, exactly. Okay. I must have 
Yeah, I can see now why it had such a big effect on you when you had just come out of a major surgery and you're in agony as it is, and you're very emotional. I know whenever I've had surgery, even the general anesthetic alone makes you feel so emotional to then be overloaded with this news that you had actually been searching for the whole time pre-surgery is just uh, absolutely shocking. Absolutely. such a letdown. So after the surgery then, did you have to have any further treatment? So after the surgery, I I was told that I should have chemotherapy. I was then placed into another trial and this was for a chemotherapy that was one month very intensive and then for the following 11 months I had to inject myself with and it caused severe side effects all of the side effects of chemotherapy that someone would do in a condensed short amount of time and then move on from. But these side effects would be ongoing after the one month to a, to a lesser extent, but still cause severe depression, suicidal thoughts, sickness, hair loss, all of those side effects for 11 months. So obviously still at this stage, trusting the professor, I got sent to further oncologists and trusted put my trust in this trial thinking well if I don't do this I haven't done everything I can I never want to look back and think I didn't do everything so at this stage I still so I I was realizing I couldn't move my arm I had this drain attached to me at my chest wall which was taking the fluid that would have been running throughout my system so a little bit more about the lymphatic system is that it is a system that is a closed system and it runs throughout the entire body. You have lymph nodes in your entire body. And the lymph nodes that had been taken out, my lymphatic system still thought they were there. So they were running to that spot. And it was supposed to be one week with the drain, but it ended up being a month, which I can now see why my body was so healthy is my lymphatic system was working so well before that. Uh, so that was a month. And in that time, I wasn't able to move my arm. So I was still trying to manage this pain and, and, and only having the use of one arm while I was being told to go through with this chemotherapy. So I was all a bit surreal still to me. And I ended up, this was by this stage, I was just doing anything that was recommended to me. I'd given up researching, given up making my own decisions and just put all of my hope and faith in the Western medical system. So I went through with the trial and it was horrific. To me, I just don't, still don't understand how my body <laughs> was able <laughs> to go through this. But even my sister said, like, watching me was so hard because I was so sick and I had to drive an hour each way for these. It was daily intravenous injections, um, sitting there having the chemotherapy, and I was just so sick. My hair started falling out. And I still was in a place without like a support system and wasn't offered much support, which is something that was a common theme, not much support for this entire process. So it was a burden on my sisters. I had a few friends helping out, but it was really hard. I felt very guilty at this time. So I did a month of that and I was finally finished and they said, but you still have the 11 months of self-injection. And they had done a liver count and had basically my liver was functioning, they realized at the end, as, as someone who they would find who is dead, 
it was not even my organs weren't even basically working. They were so weak and compromised. And I said to them, this was probably when I had that test, knew how my body was and knew that they wanted me to go on with these injections. This was really my first wake-up call and my first realisation that, hey, maybe they don't know what's best for me. Maybe they just want to do these things because that's a protocol and that's the path they're used to sending people down. But if I have to go through 11 months of this, how am I even going to live anyway? How is my body going to survive this? My eyes have been opened. So in their mind, they're doing the right thing. You had cancer, it spread your lymph nodes. They put you on, on a course of chemotherapy and that's, that's the path that they wanted you to take immaterial of the fact that, you know, your other organs such as your liver were, were failing, basically. Exactly. So where did you go from there then? What was your next, your next step of your, your journey? So the next step, this is really what triggered uh, my journey. I call it my, my healing journey and I still say that I'm on it because I am still healing from this surgery. And I will always be, my body will always be in a state of healing and fighting. So I said to them, I'm not going to continue this chemotherapy, which was really hard to do. And they strongly recommended that I continue with it and said that I wasn't making a wise decision. But I did it anyway. I I stopped it. And this is when I contacted that alternative medicine therapist who had told me not to have the lymph nodes taken out. So this is when I started learning about healing your body Eastern medicine and the idea that we don't use a Band-Aid solution. We have to identify what is the root cause and why has our body come to this? Why did I get skin cancer in the first place? Yes, I was in the sun, but why did I get it when so many other people had been in the sun? It wasn't in my genetics. No one had had it. But yes, I might have been predisposed to it. We are all predisposed to different cancers which I now know, we are all fighting, our bodies are all fighting the conditions of the world at the moment, the pollution, the lack of connection to the earth, the blue light that we have, so our circadian rhythms being out, and essentially our bodies are just fighting. And it may have come out in me as melanoma, but it might come out in someone else as an autoimmune disease. It might come out as arthritis. It might come out as a different type of cancer. We are all fighting, but our sensitivities and vulnerabilities are different. So that's when I realized that there was something more going on. So I had to fix it. I couldn't continue living the lifestyle that I was living and expect that I was going to be okay. So I had to then learn about diet, nutrition, herbs, complementary and alternative medicine. And this was at a time, mind you, if I were to say that now, no one would blink an eyelid. But for me going down this path... I was going to say 12 years ago. Yeah. It's it's something that people have adapted to as being a way to heal now. And people turn to these complementary and alternative medical therapists for treatment without thinking. But back then, even to source one out was difficult to find. 12 years ago, people would have thought you were potty. (laughs) 
Absolutely. And especially still being so young, all of my friends that I did have were interested in going out, drinking. You know, it was hard watching them. They'd get a pimple on their face and it would be, I can't go out, you know. They would (laughs) just watching them and the comparison. And mind you, this is when I still couldn't move my arm. I wasn't being offered anything in terms of physiotherapy for that. I was being dismissed and I had a huge scar on the back of my arm, a really big scar on my chest wall. I was struggling. I think that's when, you know, everything had come to fruition and I, all of my emotions, I realized the severity of everything and the life that I was going to have to live from there. And knowing that because all my trust had always been in Western medicine, you know, watching people get stitches or healing a broken bone, that was my understanding of healing. And now I was like, well, they can't help me. They have no answers. So what, what do I do? which was really empowering. So as I said, I went down this path. I changed my diet. I started seeing a naturopath, traditional Chinese medicine therapist. I was using them for, you know, healing. And at the same time, I was contacted by the Cancer Council. So... The Cancer Council had heard about my story. This really young girl, at the time, bubbly personality. Uh, She's been through all of this. It's very unusual. And look at her. She's alive now. We saved her life. We cut out the cancer. So I had the Cancer Council contact me. So I was going down this path of holistic health, but then started to do some media for the Cancer Council. And this is when I started to talk about I did some news segments speaking about the damage that the sun can cause and warning people to stay out of the sun and saying that they could get skin cancer, but I truly wasn't believing what I was saying. So I was telling people something that was contradicting my belief and it felt that, that felt very wrong for me. So I was spreading this message that I didn't stand behind. I I did get asked to keep going and doing more media for the Cancer Council, but at the same time realising, hey, this doesn't sit right. And that's these small moments of realisation are what would trigger me to just, it propelled me forward through this alternative lifestyle. So you obviously started doing your research, you got more involved in Eastern medicine. How have you had to sort of change your life accordingly since? Because I had so much pain, I noticed that when I was eating certain things, my pain wasn't as worse. Then I would eat something and it would trigger my pain. Or my, I started to get swelling around the site of the scar. And in fact, I had a, a sensation of ants crawling around the scar. And it was very confusing so I was, I started to feel better, a little bit better, get my energy back, but I still had this ongoing pain. I couldn't wear a bra. That's when I sort of went back to Western medicine a little bit, had a bit of hope. I, I was seeking lymphedema therapists and occupational therapists and asking them, why can't I wear a bra? Why do I have this swelling here? 
Why am I in so much pain? And I, I had pain around the scar. My entire shoulder was numb. I lost sensation. I still don't have the sensation back, but I had burning sensations all up my neck. I was admitted to hospital because the pain was so bad once. I ended up seeing a specialist who said to me, Bianca, you won't take painkillers, so let's do a nerve blocker. The nerve blocker will block any sensations, but you won't be able to feel anything and it will numb even your senses and potentially even emotion. And I thought, okay, well, so that's my option. So I tried to put a little bit more, you know, hope and faith back into Western medicine. And this was the top specialist for pain management telling me we can give you a nerve blocker. It won't last more than a year or so. We'll just give you another one. If I'm 20 and I have to have a nerve blocker, what's going to happen when I progress through my years? So what are my options going to be if that's their only option? So again, this propelled me even further into Eastern medicine. And I started tracking my food, started seeing what my triggers were. When I put moisturizer on my skin, even back then coconut oil, I was doing so many different things, alternative things that I, even I believed were helping. And some of them were, but I still had to consider, okay, what else was I doing that was making me feel this much pain? You know, when I exercised, when I walked, but it was when I was wearing certain clothing when I finished the dishes, when I washed my hair, all of those sorts of things that I had more pain. So that's when I started to realize, okay, it's things I'm putting on my body externally as well. So I started making all of these connections, which was for me, you just cannot, there is no way this is evidence now. So people say, oh, you don't have to change your washing powder. You don't have to use different soaps. You know, they don't really matter that much. From what I know, and I don't know a great deal, but anything that you touch or put on your skin is absorbed into your body. The end. Exactly. And that's exactly it. The skin is the largest organ. And what sits below the skin? The lymphatic system. So, yeah, this is when I really started to learn more about the lymphatic system. So this is the really another pivotal moment for me. I did some more research and at this time you know iPhones were getting a little bit more technical we had the internet we started to get a little bit more access to information which was really helping and this was 2010 I really felt like I was making some good progress but then I got an infection on my knee so I got this infection on my knee went to a an emergency room in an ambulance I was told that it was just a little bit of torn cartilage to go home and put my leg up and rest it. So I went home and rested it for a few days, but the pain was excruciating, almost as bad as, if not almost matching the pain of my surgery for lymph node removal. And I had a physiotherapist come over because I couldn't move my leg. And he said to me, you've got infection, get straight to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room. Long story short, wasn't admitted because I looked healthy, you know, triage. I was crying. They admitted me straight away. And the infection had spread so much that I had a clot in my body somewhere. They had to admit me straight into surgery and told me, look, we'll just do a keyhole surgery and we'll just, you know, wash the infection out. When I woke up, I realized they'd actually cut my knee open. There was so much infection in my body. 
and I had to stay in hospital for five days on IV antibiotics. What had caused the infection? Is it the the issues with the lymphatic system had caused the infection in your knee? Exactly. So it was the 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 lymphatic system. This is when I clued on. Okay, I've got this infection that's come out of nowhere. Potentially, I hadn't been as healthy as the, the strict diet and herbs I'd been on. I took a little break. You know, I eased up some. Wanted to live a little bit, and it was. Then I realized, okay, infection. And I did some more research and realized the lymphatic system, as I mentioned a little touched on a little bit earlier, is one of the most integral systems of the body. All systems play a role, but the lymphatic system is the immune system. So what it would have done was it was a little bit weaker, not had the full flow. I would have had toxins sitting in my body from the surgery. And that little bit of time where I wasn't healthy, it triggered that response. So that infection, which I'm now really prone to infections, I get them quite often. I actually just had one for about six months. And that was really another moment for me. I talk about these moments that propel me or that change the trajectory of my life and my understanding of things. And that was another one where I was in hospital and thought, hey, I'm 20. I get this infection that really unhealthy, older, usually older men get, that like, why is this happening to me? Why has this happened? So I, again, thought, well, I can't even, I cannot afford to relax a little bit. And I, this is when I went down a path of almost becoming compulsive about my health. So I got so inverted, you know, healthy that I was unhealthy, exactly. After, obviously, you got at hospital and you decided to become an extremist with your health, that then in turn caused you more health problems. What were you doing that was so extreme and what were those health problems in turn? The health problems that happened were different. So from being so healthy, I was consumed. My body was tense. I started getting digestive issues. My pain increased again. So I was so healthy, but my pain became worse. And I was thinking, but I'm so healthy. I'll just be healthier. I'll cut more things out. You know, just like I don't, I look back and I wonder how it was possible to live. Basically, I was living in a bubble, 100% organic, barely even washing my hair. And if I did, everything was oils. I can't even put into words how tired and exhausted it makes me feel when I look back on it. But I thought I was doing what was right for my body. Thankfully, my sister who had been there with me, one of my sisters who had been there with me on this journey, we were still living in Sydney, but we were now in the eastern suburbs. I was also studying at the time. So I was doing a diploma. And I was very stressed, very, very stressed with these studies. And she's always had this wisdom about health and this balance. Things that she has told me then that has ended up being proven to me blows my mind. I feel if I didn't have her, I might still be down that path (laughs) that I was on of extreme health, which was unhealthy as we know. So Tony, she was moving over to Ireland with her then boyfriend and said, look, Come over, we'll do three months of traveling and I think you need it to get away. And I thought, I can't travel because I need to live in a bubble and I can't fly. Even flying, I had done flights 
you know, around Australia and I'd been to Thailand shorter flights. But when I woke up from that surgery, the occupational therapist had said, you can't fly without a compression bandage. And if you fly, you're putting yourself at risk of lymphedema. So this is now four years later. So this is four years of extreme diet and I had swelling had come up on my chest wall and I had been told then, okay, you have edema. It's only spread a little bit to your fingers. But if you do anything like prick the skin, this was another thing. I had to avoid knocks, bumps, pricking my skin, <laughs> part of the bubble as well, the fear. And flying, if anything like that had happened, so flying can trigger lymphedema. So I thought, I can't travel. I'll never be able to travel. But my sister said, well, you still have this swelling. Are you going to live your life just avoiding everything or do you want to live a little bit of life, you know? And I was still in so much pain. And the interesting thing is, yes, we now know these things, but back then... Mental health wasn't discussed and the effects of, you know, of anxiety on the body or stress on the body, even now is only starting to be explored. I won't jump forward because that's a big part of what I do now. But then I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go traveling. We booked an around the world ticket to go Europe for a few months and then to America. So it was just around the world. And I thought, that's good. I'll do that. Then I've done something. So what started what should have been a, you know, like three months actually became almost two years through Europe <laughs> because I realized in that time we, we flew over, we started traveling and all of the fear I had, all of the restrictions that other people had put on me, the Western medical system had put on me, didn't allow me the opportunity to explore my body to explore what what might have been more beneficial for me, what I now see is more beneficial because of fear, fear and guilt. Anytime I did anything that went outside of what they told me to do was, was guilt. So I did nine months of backpacking. Mind you, my sister always had the heavier bag, but I carried this bag, which I was told I couldn't carry. And we did it on a budget. So we would forego getting taxis to carry our bags for what 1.5 k's to a hostel and my body became more robust again and it became stronger and my pain started to subside and I just I, I couldn't believe it because we were still relatively healthy for being in a hostel I would still practice oil pulling we still had our alkalizing greens I still had some of the herbs that I was using before but none of the regime that I had and I was eating a bit of bread I had cheese in France I had wine in Italy I was doing all of these things that supposedly weren't good for me but my swelling had subsided in my body and my pain had subsided that's absolutely incredible so then after you finished your your traveling obviously you had a completely different mindset and a completely different way of moving forward and living your life how did you then end up on the path that you're on now i was obviously so passionate about it and i had helped so many people i had seen something within them and i thought you know what they need to hear this so it was through my traveling and 
helping people along the way with that, like a balanced approach, little things. So teaching them oil pulling, teaching them to alkalize their body, teaching them about hydration or anything like that, but in a really simple way, really broke it down so that it was manageable for them. And having them write to me later on saying, Bianca, you changed my life. These small things put me on a path, a journey. I didn't realize that such small steps could have such a huge impact on my life. And that that feedback that really fed something in me, I was always drawn to helping people through anything, even before I was sick. I'd nurtured people. So I started piecing these things together. Okay, we still need help. We still need certain things. But I started to see, I recall my sister and I, we were, I'll move forward from the travels, but this, this is a big moment again. We were in the van in Italy and we, we had these so many two euro bottles of wine and we were having an alcohol free day. And I was like, you know, I don't want to have an alcohol free day. I want to have a wine and had some chocolate. And we were just sitting there and I said to my sister, I don't ever want to go back to the way I was. I want to make sure that I take this feeling with me and I use it. I want to combine this feeling of my body being relaxed, pure inner joy, pure happiness, minimal pain, obviously a little bit because I'll always have some, but I want to use that in conjunction with everything I know. And I want to help people realize that there's more to health than what you ingest. There's more to health than what you avoid. And I really, that was what made me think about my future and what I wanted to do. So I got back from travels and throughout that time of being away, we were disconnected from the world, but I got back and Instagram was a huge phenomenon. Everyone was on Instagram and everyone was talking about health. Everyone was changing everyone was on a different diet vegan vegetarian pescatarian carnivore there was so many and I was baffled because I had been living this way for so long and suddenly it was the topic of conversation for everyone it seemed and I couldn't avoid it so it's as though the way I had been living before travel was now the way the thought on everyone's mind and my friends were consumed by health strangers were consumed by health people were talking about alternative and complementary medicine and just seeking out any practitioner people weren't feeling good so they were going down this path and I was seeing it everywhere and I thought well I was about to teach people about this balance but now people are just so consumed so I thought well what I'll do is I'll start a nutrition degree so I have a piece of paper so people will listen to me because everyone is focused on food so I started a nutrition degree not long after I got back from traveling so I was a semester in and I ended up moving to the US so I moved to the US and because I could not continue studying nutrition there anything even in the states from state to state in the US might not be transferable to the next state So I thought I'll take a break from studying nutrition and I'll learn something that can help me. And what had helped me in my physical healing of my body, when I'd lost full movement of my arm, my left arm after the surgeries, and I didn't get much help, I had used Pilates as a way to regain that movement. So I used Pilates to rebalance my body, to strengthen my body again in a gentle way. And I'd fallen in love with it then. 
so much so that I was still doing little bits of it when we lived in the van and on my travels in the room with my sister. And it had stuck with me, the things I learned. So I thought I'll study to become a Pilates instructor because in the meantime, while I'm living here, I can help people through movement. I didn't realize how profound this practice was going to be, not just for me learning the system, but for other people. I didn't realize the impact it could have and the positive changes it could make in someone's life, even through one hour of movement. So I got the certification, started working with clients, and my clients were having great results in one hour. And I thought, wow, in an hour, this practice, I won't say I did it because it's not my system. I'm just a facilitator. But this practice is changing lives. And I have people walk in from one week to the next saying to me, I, I haven't never felt this way. I'm walking taller. I'm breathing better. I'm happy. I'm happy just through this one hour. For me, reformer Pilates was an absolute game changer. Obviously, I've got scoliosis and doing reformer Pilates. I can't even begin to explain how much that changed my body and how well I felt within myself from doing it. So what you're telling me about what your clients say is, you know, it is relatable because for anyone who's actually decided to embark upon the, the journey of going down that route of Pilates, they will have felt the benefits. So they will be able to relate to, to what, what we're discussing. Absolutely. And like you said, you felt more well in your body. And that's what we're trying to achieve is wellness. And not just wellness of the mind, but wellness, physical wellness too. It's a balance, exactly. And so that, that wellness is always, balance isn't static. It's, it's always moving. It's always changing. And I think a lot of people get caught up in this idea that one thing has worked for them, one food type of, one way of eating has changed them or you know they just get so caught up in what has worked that they don't realize that our bodies are continuously changing even though our bodies are changing pilates will always be beneficial for your body at whatever phase it's in however it's feeling and like you said say with scoliosis there's not a lot of relief you can get in other movement practices in fact some can even exacerbate your your pain and so to have something like that it's just so powerful because you can use Pilates for so many different, not just physical problems in the body, but emotional as well, psychological. I think a lot of it goes hand in hand because if your mental well-being isn't right and isn't balanced, it affects you physically. And if your physical well-being isn't right or balanced, it affects you mentally. So as you said, even though that balance is constantly changing, it's kind of finding what works for you at each given stage to help balance that out. It's not a, you know, one, one size fits all and you just do that for the rest of your life and it's going to be okay. So if you just eat that food, it's okay. If you just do that exercise, it's okay. Sometimes you need to add different things into your diet or into your, your practice, you know, with, well, for me, it's yoga, but, you know, Pilates or, or whatever you're, you're choosing to do to try and help you find that balance both up here and in here. By that, I was pointing to my head and my body because people are listening and can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> Made sense to me. I can see you. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, in a sense, is what has taken me to now where I'm at. So what you have just said is what I essentially piece together over time from doing the Pilates certification 
working with clients, but then also knowing that there are so many components. You know, health isn't just the movement, as we said. So that's when I decided that moment I had in the van when I said to my sister, I want to implement this, I want to integrate it somehow, I realized that I could actually help my clients because even though so many people were on this obsessive path, I won't say everyone, I'm generalizing, but it was a a common theme that I would still see. The vast majority, and particularly in Australia, I mean, I remember, obviously I was there for a very long time. I was there before health and well-being was really that, sort of like predominant and it was all just about like beers and barbies and then all of a sudden it flipped and everyone was a vegan and there was you know juice bars on every corner so I do remember that transition of of sort of people changing and the yoga studios popping up everywhere reformer pilates popping up everywhere and it was great you know it really was great and you notice such a big sort of change and turn in in society overall, I would say more acceptance because like you were saying, when you first went down that that route, it it wasn't quite as accepted. So some people might say, oh, just being like a bit, bit of a hippie, bit out there. Whereas then actually when people started seeing, oh, this actually works, these are alternative routes that you can take, people were taking what you were saying a lot more seriously. And there was a lot more, you know, uh, for, uh, access for you as well at that point. Absolutely. And I, I found then that people, rather than me speaking to someone, noticing that we're talking about something and putting my experiences or learned knowledge on them, people were coming to me. So people were seeing me as a source of healing and health. And because I didn't speak too much about my journey when I was going through cancer, not a lot of people realized that that is what triggered it and how much I had done, how much learning I had done. And it was still this idea that a piece of paper and what somebody has learned at university in a degree with information that was relevant at that time, so where science was at at that time is what they were going on and practicing. So people were turning to therapists who had a piece of paper And then suddenly, not just friends and family, but people on Instagram started reaching out to me. Hey, my friend said, you know, this or this. And it was, it was, it was awesome because so many people were reaching out to me, but it was also a really big responsibility and something that I wasn't practicing at the time. I thought, well, am I really qualified to be giving people this information? I'm just going to stick to my movement. So I almost shunned people away, not thinking that they were ready for this information or what if I triggered them on a health obsession? You know, I still had this hesitance. So I had a few years there. I ended up moving back to Australia last year in 2019, middle of the year. And I knew that I wanted to teach Pilates, but I knew that my style was different. So the style of Pilates I had learned was really close to the original method created by Joseph Pilates. And I wanted to use this method because it was about breathing, control, centering, focus, concentration. And as we said, that's also like the side of it that you're using for your mind and relaxing the body. And then I get to Australia. And again, I'm generalizing. This is what I saw was a lot of the Pilates were just high intensity sessions, squats on the side of the reformer, very fast paced, which yes, it does have its place for a lot of people 
who have strong bodies who can do this style, but not for everyone. And most of the time, somebody who had sought out Pilates had done it because of a recommendation from a health practitioner. So they were then being put into this Pilates that was detrimental to their body because of their pain, because of their ailments. And they were desperate to find answers, but would just would end up feeling more pain, discomfort, and then that would be triggering their mental health issues. So you brought your style of Pilates back to Australia and decided to set up your own studio. Exactly. So I was going to start working in a studio, which I don't put that out off the cards for me. I would still love to do. But for the meantime, I've fused together the style of Pilates that I have learned. So very slow, very controlled. But I also use a range of breathing methods. I focus a lot on rebalancing the parasympathetic nervous system or trying to switch people out of fight or flight because as we've spoken about a lot now, and this is something that I've kind of come to my point of where I'm at, is that I truly believe that most of the health issues that we have, in addition to what we're combating in this world, toxins, pollution, all of the things that we now know about that you could spend a whole podcast on, I won't go down that path, but there are ways to manage that. And unfortunately, the side effects are, or even this, of even this fast-paced world, where so many people are in a fight-or-flight state in their body. So they're in a stressed state. And it's physical because, you know, it has its place, this amount of stress, this cortisol that's being released. It was a protection. And it's okay in moderation. But, but we have so much pressure these days, time constraints, where everyone's doing so many things. And it's just they're constantly in fight or flight. So a lot of what I do, it's not complicated. We don't have to complicate healing. It's more about switching that off so that your our bodies are so smart. We're actually designed to self-heal. Supplements are great. We are mineral depleted. But our bodies have the ability to heal themselves if we just allow them to. If we can just switch out of this state where we're constantly releasing cortisol, where we're constantly stressed and tense, our lymphatic systems will start working better. We won't have the tightness, so fascial adhesions throughout all of our bodies that everyone's in pain all the time. It really doesn't take that much. So that's essentially what I've tried to do. I've tried to simplify healing and I'm having great results. And I, this is not credit to me. This is just the things that I've learned that I know work. But I'm so thankful that I've found something that is, that is helping people far beyond anything that I could have done before through a degree, the results that I'm having. And then this is a trickle effect because people who are so desperate for answers, who are at their wit's end and just helpless, they have no hope, are hearing about this and they're reaching out to me. And for me, again, it's a little bit of my time and just utilizing the knowledge that I've picked up along the way to completely change their lives. And for you, I'll start looking to, to wind things up slightly now, but for you, obviously going through your, your journey to this and now doing this as your job, how has that affected and impacted your health? Because obviously this journey all began because of your health. So we've kind of gone 
full circle. You've been through living an unhealthy lifestyle, going through the cancer, being left with lymphedema, becoming obsessive to the point of unhealthy about your house, throwing caution to the wind then and going off traveling and then kind of finding this this middle ground where you can actually be a huge advocate for your beliefs, but also implement those things into your your life and, and through your work and through your lifestyle, that's obviously going to be having an impact on your health now. So are you finding that these things are helping manage your health and your pain? It's interesting because within that time of coming back to Australia, I started focusing a lot more on not the lymphedema in my body, but raising awareness for lymphedema. So through that process, I've then had to go back down that path of all the things I've learned and how I think they can help people. So that's essentially been really therapeutic for me to, like you said, come full circle. So I went full circle myself there like through all of those realizations but then it was most recently you know we are always learning and growing and I never think hey I've got this I always think there's so much more to learn I just get excited about these things but it was recently when I started working with clients and realizing that I could help people I took on so many clients that I just I almost became addicted to helping people and through that, had none, no switch off time, no wind down time. You know, I talk about health being a lot more simple than I ever thought it could be. Things for me like going to the ocean, earthing, grounding, breathing in the salt air, um, relieving stress, relieving tension. I was now living completely opposite to that. But while I was teaching people all the things I knew, I was almost a hypocrite because I wasn't doing them myself. So most recently, I had a complete health shutdown. We just woke up one day and I, because I was pushing my body a lot and I, I woke up one day and just could not move. So my body had said to me, that's enough. My brain was pushing further. I was running on adrenaline. All those things, you know, that eat away at your body and cause the, the health side effects. So I had to take what I thought would be a few days off turned into two months. I couldn't move, had no energy, started back down my, the path of health, which I was already eating really well. And I was so confused because I thought all of these things I've learned, why can't I fix myself? Why am I fixing it? How can I fix other people? But what's going on with me? And I went back down traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, all of those things. And I was getting no relief did not get my energy back. And again, it was my sister who said to me, B, what have you just put your body through since your surgery, since you had your lymph nodes removed? You have not stopped. You have not stopped learning, helping people, even traveling, even the things I enjoy. She said, if you don't stop, you didn't stop, so your body's telling you you need to stop. You don't need all these things. You just need to go with it. You need to relax. You need to switch off. You need to rest. So I started resting and stopped trying to push myself and I healed. So I then again had this, you know, I've spoken throughout this podcast about these pivotal moments or these, you know, these forks that I go down or realizations, epiphanies, if you will. This to me was the most recent one. And it was so profound, so powerful because I realized, hang on, I need a balance too. 
I'm balanced by Bianca now. I'm balancing other people, but I need this balance. And I think other people need to know more about what I went through to get to this stage. So that's when I decided to start speaking about my journey. And this, in a sense, holds me accountable too, because I need people to know that it's okay to not be busy. It's okay to not be stressed. It's okay not to have a thousand things going on because the alternative is spending all of your time trying to heal yourself. So it's in a sense taking all of your time anyway. So I guess for me, if we were to wrap it up and go full circle, I've realized once again, the importance of balance, of taking time to rest, all the small things that matter, you know, like I focus a lot now on blue light and, and balancing your circadian rhythms, grounding and earthing and really small, simple things that you can do to maintain health and optimal health for the conditions of this world. And it's really so simple. And I guess for me, it's helped me relearn and understand how much I, I need to focus on that and then help other people focus on that. That's absolutely brilliant, B. Honestly, I've so enjoyed talking to you, not just learning more about your journey years ago, because I met you just before all that sort of began for you, but but just listening to your whole journey right the way through to this current day. On each podcast, there is um, a brief overhaul. And if it's okay with you, I will pop your um, Insta handle onto there so that if people do want to learn a bit more, they can have a look on your page. I know that you put some really great information on both your stories and on your grid about different movements, different treatments, different ways to help your, your body, your lymphatic system. So as long as that's okay with you I will add those things up yes please do I love sharing so it was great speaking to you today B thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with us thank you so much for having me Denny and for sharing a little bit more about my story and creating more awareness for this I really appreciate your time and for having me Thanks so much again, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of the Grown Up Hustle podcast. If you guys want more information on intuitive living or to connect with Bianca on any of the topics that we've discussed on today's show, then hop onto the Grown Up Hustle podcast on Instagram, where Bianca is tagged in this week's posts on my grid. While you're there, give us a follow to stay updated on up and coming shows. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the Grown Up Hustle podcast on whatever platform you're listening on to be the first in line for next week's drop i hope you all have a great week guys and i'll catch you all soon